I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. If you need a Bible, there's probably one in front of the, uh, in the seat in front of you. And Exodus is the very, just the second book of the Bible, so right there at the beginning. We've been working our way through this book for the last several um, weeks. We'll continue on here in Exodus chapter 6. I'll be reading Exodus 6, verse 1 through 13. Exodus 6, beginning in verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Appeared, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now that you would take your word, which you have inspired and given to us, we ask that you would take this very word and address each one of us with what we need to hear, and let us hear what you have spoken. We pray that your spirit would make us understand your word and understand it to such a degree that we would be walking out of our meeting together today different, changed or challenged, convicted or encouraged. Lord, we pray that it would not be dismissed. Whatever you need to do to make us hear, do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel as though my goal each week with speaking to you is um, almost the same. I want to stir up your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
so that you will go on trusting him for another week. Not that I can do that in myself, but I feel that as we come to God's word week after week, it beckons us to trust him again, to believe him, to take him at his word. Faith feeds on promises. We're going to have a feast. Some of us might have a feast after this, after this time together. There's a lot of food being prepared. You can probably smell it right now. There will be all kinds of delicacies And it will satisfy our hunger and delight us. Our faith feeds on the delightful promises of God. Sometimes, however, we starve ourselves. And we develop an appetite not for things that faith feeds on, but things that our flesh feeds on. We develop an appetite for wanting things here and now. Faith is future-looking. Faith is looking at what is to come. But our fleshly appetite wants to be satisfied right now. We want God to do it now, or we want to take for ourselves what we want now. And then our appetite drives us to fulfill itself, and we no longer fulfill ourselves on the promises of God. But I think that this text here in Exodus chapter 6 prepares for us a feast of promises that only faith can feed on. It doesn't feed your fleshly appetites. It feeds your faith. What kind of appetite do you have this morning? In seminary, my preaching professors taught me that I should always have a proposition or a thesis statement for what I want to uh, preach about or what what the text is about. And I am kind of vexed every Sunday that I come to preach because I always feel like it's going to be just about the same thing. Trust Jesus. Trust him again. That's what this sermon is driven to produce. That's what this text is driven to produce. And every week I feel drawn to compel you to try to believe in Christ again for another day, another week. The great salvation that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has purchased for us calls us to trust him. Trust Him, yes, for our salvation that's been accomplished, but also for the things that are going to be done for us in the time to come. The context of this chapter in Exodus, of course, is the Israelites are burdened with their slavery in Egypt, and God has called Moses to go into Egypt to deliver them out of that slavery that they are experiencing. And as Moses is called and is going on this journey, He acts much like we would act. A man full of doubts, fears, questions. He has questioned God at the end of chapter 5 and verse 22, asking God, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Moses is perplexed. He's discouraged. He's doubting. The Israelites are so burdened by their slavery that when they hear the message of what God is going to do for them, it says that they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. You almost wish, if you know the rest of the story of Exodus, that you could take those Israelites and take Moses in the time that they were experiencing this and just read for them the rest of Exodus 
Because then they would see that God is going to act in a mighty way. You could show them the video of what's going to happen, the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of Pharaoh's army, the deliverance from all of their slavery. And you could say, look, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Wish that I could show you a video of what God is going to do in the time to come. And you would see his great rescue, his great deliverance, his great redemption. And you would know it's going to be okay. God hasn't given us a video. He's given us his living word. He speaks to us promises that are as sure as his name, that what he says he will do, he will do. And that offer of a promise calls us to put our faith in that, to trust him. Even if times are hard, we trust that he is going to do what he has said he will do. So may this text build your faith in the promises God makes. The focus of this is really verses 2 through 9. Because there God sets for us this feast of actions that he has taken and promises that he makes. And we'll work through these to stir up our faith and trust in him. First, we have four actions that God has taken. Four actions that God has taken towards salvation. Action one is that he has partially revealed himself. God has partially revealed himself. In verse 2, God begins this dialogue to Moses. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And in verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Genesis is the book that comes before Exodus, and it's largely the story of those three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's not a story primarily about a long backstory for Abraham, about his feelings and his emotions. It's primarily about his relationship with God and God fulfilling what he said he would do for him. In fact, Abraham doesn't even come really into the foreground until Genesis 12 when God speaks to Abraham, telling him to go from his country and his kindred to the land that God shows him. And then we really get to know Abraham because God has spoken to him. And so all of Abraham is really relating to the God who has spoken to him. When God revealed himself to Abraham and to Abraham's son Isaac and to Abraham's grandson Jacob, it says that he revealed himself as God Almighty. This And he goes on to say, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. It does not mean that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not know the name Yahweh or the name the Lord. Clearly, they used it in Genesis chapter 14, verse 22. Abraham says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord or to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. You need to remember that the word name doesn't just mean that one word that you are called, it also means reputation. So what God is saying here is that when he revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he revealed himself with the reputation of God Almighty or El Shaddai, 
But the full reputation of Yahweh he had not revealed to them. Or all that would be attached to the name Yahweh has not been made known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He partially revealed himself. He revealed himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But all that is going to be attached to the name Yahweh, he has not made known yet. This makes sense. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in a different period of time at the beginning of God giving a promise to them. Exodus, where God fully reveals his name Yahweh, reveals the great salvation and deliverance that God gives to his people Israel. And that deliverance, that salvation is going to be attached to that name Yahweh. When God revealed himself as El Shaddai, it seems to speak of God revealing himself as a blessing God. In Genesis 17, 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Then he appears to Jacob in Genesis 35, 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Then in 28.11, it says, God Almighty bless you. Genesis 43.14, may God Almighty grant you mercy. Genesis 48.3, God Almighty appeared to me and blessed me. Genesis 49.25, the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. It was God revealed himself as God Almighty He was revealing himself to be a blessing God, a God who would take care of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prosper them. He was a blessing God. But it was a partial revelation because he says he had not made his name, Yahweh, known to them. And again, he means by that the full revelation of the kind of deliverance that he's going to do in Exodus had not been yet made known. We ought to understand this concept. Although we haven't passed through a a sea that's been parted in two, we've experienced something of the great power and revelation of God. He revealed himself as God Almighty to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He revealed himself as Yahweh to the generation of the Israelites brought through the Red Sea. Matthew 121, speaking of Mary, it says, She will bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We take on our lips another name, Jesus, the one who brings a deliverance not from slavery in Egypt, but from sin. He saves us from sin. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 speaks about the Old Testament prophets looking forward to the salvation that would be revealed in the time to come. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The New Testament brings to our attention a revelation of God that had not been made known in the past, the revelation of the great Jesus of Nazareth, 
who would give his life at the cross to deliver his people from their sins. So God reveals himself partially in order to make himself more fully known in the salvation that he brings about. That's his first action. His second action is that he established his covenant. Verse 4 says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. The second action the Lord describes is that he established his covenant or he brought it into operation. He made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that promise was the defining element of the relationship they were to have with God. God related to them through this covenant, and they related to God through this promise. And the content of the promise, although more than this, at least included this, that he would give to them the land of Canaan. The interesting part of this that I find is that although they were promised the land of Canaan, it says that they lived there as sojourners. The promise was given, but their existence in that land was one of uh, pitching tents and living there temporarily and not owning the land in which they lived. And so a promise was established, but Exodus is going to bring about the moving forward of the fulfillment of that promise. We see the advance of the plot that really doesn't come to fruition until Joshua when the people enter the land. Perhaps we remember that the Lord Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, the covenant by which we relate to God. We remember this every time we take communion as we remember that Jesus Christ gave his body and shed his blood to give us the forgiveness of sins. And that covenant is the, relation, is the basis of our relationship with God. And being a part of that covenant, we experience now wonderful blessings of the forgiveness of sins, of a real relationship with God, of a cleansed conscience. But there's more to come. Ephesians 4.30 says that we've been sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit of God. And so we've received a part of the new covenant, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is that paradigm, if you haven't heard it, that's really helpful of already and not yet. You already experienced some of the blessings of salvation, the gift of forgiveness, a real relationship with God, a cleansed conscience, the Holy Spirit, and yet there are promises that have not yet to come to pass, a redeemed body living in glory, complete freedom from sin. We still wait for that. God established a promise. He's going to advance the plot, and we live in a time where we're waiting for that plot to be completed. The third action God takes towards salvation is that he heard the groaning of his people. Verse 5 says, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. This has already happened back in chapter 2 of Exodus. This is what kicked off the whole event of calling Moses. It says that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery in Exodus 2.23 and cried out for help 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. This is a reminder to Moses that God hears the plight of his people. He hears their agony. And the plight has gotten worse. If you remember Exodus 5, Moses went into Pharaoh, demanded that Pharaoh let the people go. Pharaoh doubled down and would not let them go, but rather made their labor harder. And the people now are broken in spirit, and they groan, and God hears. He hears. Does the Lord hear our cries, our groaning? Yes, of course he does. James chapter 5, verse 4, paints a picture of a people who are enduring suffering at the hands of oppressors. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Or Luke 18, verses 7 through 8 says, And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night, Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Yes, he hears us. He's looking for your faith. Not only does God hear our cries, he helps us cry out to him. He gives us his spirit who intercedes for us when we're united to Christ. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Oh, God hears the groanings of his people, and not only does he hear them, he gives us his Spirit to help us in our groanings. The fourth action that's described here is that he remembered his covenant. It says at the end of verse 5, and I have remembered my covenant. This is a bit amusing to us because it might picture in our minds the image of a sleeping God whose cries of his people come up to him and kind of nudge him awake and he looks at the clock and thinks, oh, that's right, I need to do something. But that's a human notion of God. But God is not a man. He is not like us. So when it says that he remembers, it's not because he's forgotten. It means his remembrance is his moment to bring to action the fulfillment of the promise that he had made. God remembers his promise. And now he kicks into action a course that will lead to a fulfillment of his promise. When Mary has been told by the angel that she's going to give birth to the Son of God who will will reign forever, she goes and meets her cousin Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. The baby in the womb leaps, and Mary breaks into song. And her song states in Luke 1, 54 through 55, He has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
when Jesus Christ was sent into the world, it was still God remembering his promise to Abraham that compelled him to take action to bring about deliverance for his people. God is still remembering that promise to Abraham to bring blessings untold through Jesus of Nazareth. Or Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, after his son is born and, and Zechariah had been mute for nine months, his mouth is loosed and he sings to God in Luke 1.68. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he goes on in verse 72 to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. I hope you think that's cool, because here's a gap of over a thousand years, and God is still remembering his promise to Abraham and using that remembrance to bring Jesus Christ into the world to bring salvation. He still remembers his covenant. Your access to God through Christ is dependent on God remembering a promise that he made thousands of years ago. Does God keep his word? You betcha. The actions that God has taken for our salvation. He said he revealed himself partially in order to more fully reveal himself in deliverance. God established the covenant that we are all dependent upon for our salvation. God hears the groanings or the need of his people, and he remembers his covenant by which he activates a rescue plan to save us. That leads us into promises that God makes. Those are the actions he had already taken. And now we see promises that he makes that he orders Moses to go and tell the people of Israel and we'll draw application for us today. There are eight, eight promises that God makes that will bring about his salvation. The first promise is relief. Relief. It says in verse 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That sounds like relief to me. Relief. A wonderfully compassionate of God to see the, the burdens of this people who are so enslaved that their spirit is broken. Oftentimes, God is painted as this monstrous dictator who just loves to afflict people. But he's a God who brings relief. He knows the burdens of his people and sets out to relieve them. It's said of our Lord Jesus that he does not quench a smoldering, smoldering wick. He will not break a bruised reed. It says in Isaiah 40, 30 through 31, that even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God's intention for the Israelites was to bring them out from under that oppressive burden they were experiencing. I would imagine that if the opportunity was given to some of us in this room, you could testify of the relief that God has brought into your life. 
you could describe what God has done to relieve you. And by the kind of relief I have in mind, I have in mind the relief from constantly trying to be good enough and constantly failing. Relief from the misery of a self-centered life. Relief from the torment of a guilty conscience. And finding forgiveness to be the only thing that can relieve the burden of the guilt that you have in your mind. Knowing that you have so much heaped up against you that you can't possibly make it right on your own. But you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ whose blood cleanses your conscience because God forgives you in Christ. Do you know that relief? Or the relief relief of the burden of not knowing what to do and just living an aimless, undirected life. And the relief God brings when he puts your orbit around the sun, Jesus Christ. And now you have direction and purpose and peace. And you know your task in life is to follow Christ. Have you tasted that kind of relief? To be brought out from under the burdens. The second promise is deliverance. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. The difference between deliverance and relief is minor, but perhaps it could be put this way. God could have lightened the slavery, given them a good master, and that could have relieved the burdens. But the way that God is going to relieve them of their burdens is through the removal of slavery. They will be made free, no longer slaves. I wonder who... Or what has had you under its thumb? Who has been your master? Who has controlled you? Who is controlling you? What demands your life from you? There are many things and many ways that we can find that we are enslaved in this life. A slavery that is burdensome. It can be a love of money where you serve money. It can be a love of pleasure that you serve pleasure. It can be a fear of others where you constantly serve just to have others think well of you. It can be lust of the flesh. It can be the pursuit of pleasure, comfort, success. All of these can be cruel taskmasters that have you under their thumb. If you are under any other master than the Lord Jesus Christ, you are living with a cruel master. But Jesus came to set captives free. Luke chapter 4 finds Jesus coming into Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue and he takes up the scroll of Isaiah to read. And as he reads, he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and everybody stared at him. And Jesus said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus brings relief 
from our burdens by delivering us from that which enslaves us. He's still doing that work. The third promise is that of redemption. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Redemption is such a precious word. It's a lovely word. It's a personal one. Though it can be used of impersonal things like buying back property that you have lost or buying a slave back because they owed a debt and giving them freedom. It's personal, though, because with redemption, there has to be a redeemer. And that redeemer is a person which makes it personal. So as God seeks to bring redemption to the Israelites, he is going to be their redeemer, making it a very personal act. And the way that he will redeem them is through great acts of judgment and an outstretched arm. God will flex his muscle as he delivers his people, as he redeems them and pays the price of judgment to bring them out of their slavery. Haven't you seen God pay a price for your redemption? 1 Peter 1, 8 through 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed, same kind of language as redemption, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Redemption is always personal because it takes a redeemer to do it and he pays the price for it to be accomplished. The fourth promise is that of adoption. Adoption. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. This is the language of adoption. There are lots of different groups of people in the world. Um, in the Old Testament, there are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, all those ites that are out there. Lots of them. But God set his sight on this group of people. And he was going to bring them out of slavery and call them my people. They will belong to him. They will be the people marked by who their God is. 1 Peter 2.10 tells us how we've been brought into the family of God. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Galatians chapter 4, 4-7 through 7 uses the language of adoption to describe this, because as you're brought to belong to God and be called his people, it's a familial relationship where you are considered his children. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
by God's grace, he calls a people who were once not a people to be his, to belong to him, and he adopts them to be in his family, to call them his children, his sons and his daughters, and to give us his spirit so that we can call him Father. Related to this is the fifth promise, that of lordship. Lordship. It's that Yahweh will be their God. It goes hand in hand. You will be my people, and I will be your God. That means that God will exercise all that he is for those who belong to him. In belonging to him, they will have God as their God, and so they will experience his care, his protection, his favor, his blessing, his instruction, his wisdom, his provision, being his people and being God to them go hand in hand. It's why it's so disastrous when the Israelites disregard the very first commandment that is given, you shall have no other gods before me. And they commit rank idolatry. It's an exclusive relationship. That's the way Jesus puts it in Matthew 10, 37 to 39. It's the kind of relationship we're to have with him. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The call is to an exclusive relationship. You belong to him and God is your God and you treat him as such. But it's not just a negative thought. It's a positive one because you have the God of the universe as your God. All the others are fakes and frauds, but when you have God, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, you have the real thing. Revelation 21.7 The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The sixth promise is knowledge knowledge and you shall know that i am the lord your god who has brought you out from under the burdens of the egyptians this does not mean of course just intellectual knowledge many people could ascribe that yahweh is god this is experiential knowledge notice that it's qualified that they shall know that it is the Lord who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. It is knowing that when they go through that Red Sea and they are delivered, it was God who did it for them. They've experienced his deliverance. They will know that. They shall have that knowledge. And so it beckons us to ask the question, do you know God in this way? Have you tasted of his delivering power? And this is the real crux of the issue because it's not just, do you know that Jesus saves from sins? Is it, do you know Jesus has saved you from your sins? It's not just knowing that Jesus is Lord, it's knowing that Jesus is your Lord. He has proven himself to be such to you. This gospel that is offered is so wonderful but it has to be received. 
If you don't know God in this way, if you've not received this delightful experience of the deliverance that God offers, deliverance from the guilt of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit and a promise of eternal life, if you can't say, I know God has given me eternal life, I know God has forgiven me, if you can't say that, God offers to you a way to come to that. He's offered His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave His life on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And God raised him from the dead to show that that penalty, that price had been paid in full so that when Jesus said it is finished, it's stamped with the approval of the resurrection. And God offers to all, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So believe in the Lord Jesus. It says repent of your sins, turn from your wicked ways and come and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and you will find him enough. Do you know God in this way? Can you say, you know Jesus Christ has saved you from your sins? The seventh promise and eighth promise go together. It's land and possession of that land. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession I am the Lord. The seventh promise is that land, they will enter and be brought into the land of Canaan. What a great provision that was, that this group of slaves was going to be brought out of Egypt and into another land. But not only was it that, the eighth promise includes possession of that land, that they will possess it. Now, I don't think that we ought to expect that we are going to uh, have a strip of land next to the Mediterranean Sea in the Middle East. So what does this have to do with us? There's a label that's been placed on you, that Scripture gives you. It's given to you in 1 Peter 2.11. Listen to how you are described if you follow Christ. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Did you hear what you're called? Sojourner, an exile. That means that you're like Abraham, just pitching a tent in a land that you don't own. You're wandering through this world. You're in exile, really cast out from the main way of living, and you live in kind of this sojourner lifestyle. Sure, some of us own homes or property or cars that we could call our own to some degree, but the Bible paints a more stark picture than we might be willing to accept. It calls you a sojourner, an exile. You're just pitching your tent. You don't really own this land. It's not really yours yet. But what does Jesus say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There is a promise that is probably so big we can't really wrap our minds around it. You're exiles and sojourners now if you belong to Jesus Christ, but there will come a day where those who are the meek shall inherit the earth. It will belong to you. Right now, 
sojourners, exiles, then inheritors of the earth. So brothers and sisters, don't get too worried about property taxes. We're sojourners and exiles on a path toward inheriting the earth. And God means it. The promises and actions of our God toward our salvation are meant to stoke the fire of faith in us. Are you trusting him? Are you trusting him now? Do you believe him? You don't get to see the videotape of how it's going to unfold, but you have his living word. Are you trusting him? Trust him. Let's do it together. Let's pray. Father, your promises are precious and great. And we know that there's more to come in what you will do for your people. Now we rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your life so that we can be debt-free. We thank you, Father, for sending your Spirit so that we have new life. We're not the people we once were. And yet, Father, we know that to be a sojourner in exile is not an easy path to live right now. We've been delivered from the burden of sin Yet we still live with our flesh and we fight the temptations. We press on, Lord, and not all of your promises have come to pass. So give us faith to trust you and to believe you and to wait for the fullness of the day of redemption that will come. Lord, help us to press on and trust you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.